Apple family. My name's Todd. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, you're going to have to forgive my voice today. Uh, I've been losing it all week, and I was just praying, God, don't let me lose it on Sunday. And I still got a little bit left. So I'm going to give it all I got preaching. And I'm going to ask that God just blesses this time. But, but before we get into the Word, let's go ahead and open up in prayer and ask God to bless this time. Father, we just thank you so much for all the blessings that we have in your son, Jesus. Lord, as we look at him today in Mark chapter 2, and Lord, and how he dealt with the Pharisees, the Pharisees who had set up a system that was hypocritical, that was judgmental, that was not loving, that was contrary to the gospel. Lord, and he addresses their flawed system right at the heart of it. And he preaches a new way, and he lives a new way, and he gives us something that is just brand new. And Father, I pray that each one of us would neglect, or that we would reject our old systems. God, the old systems that we have used in the past to earn your favor, the old systems that have defined us, God, that we would leave those behind and that we would accept Jesus as the new system, the one who has given us a new way and a new life, a new purpose, a new identity. Father, now as we dig into your word, may your Holy Spirit speak strongly, Lord. May, Despite my voice, Lord, may your spirit just speak so clearly to our hearts that it changes us. And Father, we pray all this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, 6. So if you will, turn there, and if you're able to stand, let's stand together as we read this together. So Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 3.6, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles, there are blue Bibles, ESVs that are in front of your seats, go ahead and use that, and if you need to take it home with you, if you want it, if you know someone that needs a Bible, those are for you, I love buying Bibles and giving away like crazy, and so um, take a Bible, take two Bibles, I don't care, just as long as they get into people's hands, so let's read this together, and, and let's honor the Lord as we read his word. It says, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Thus reads the word of God. You may be seated. So here we're starting to see this is the, the fourth and the fifth occurrence where Jesus has described and displayed his authority over the religious system of the Pharisees. You'll probably notice by now in Mark 
that Jesus goes out of his way to frustrate the Pharisees, doesn't he? He's not trying to live and do his ministry in the shadows where he just never encounters any conflict or any struggle with the Pharisees. He's living in such a way that he's going right to the heart of the false system that the Pharisees had established. He does not take false religion well. Jesus doesn't. He hates hypocrisy. He wants true and genuine disciples. He wants people who love him. He wants people who follow hot hot after his heels. He wants people who are committed to his way. And that's what I'm going to be preaching about today is I've titled this The Heart of Worship because God is not impressed by the outward works that you do if your heart is not in it. God wants your heart in everything you do. He wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants to love your neighbor as yourself. The heart is really what determines whether or not we know God. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And so if our heart is what determines whether or not we know God, whether or not we're pleasing God and obedient to God, then we need to do a heart check. We need to constantly, every single morning, check our hearts, just like David said, and said, God, if there's any unclean way in me, show me. Reveal it to me, because my heart, if my heart's poisoned, if my heart's leading me astray, then I've got no hope. Because the heart is the seat of, it's, it's, the, it's the command center of my life. My heart directs where I go. It, it focuses my eyes on what I look at. It directs what comes out of my mouth, for out of the heart the mouth speaks. And so the heart is a very essential issue. But you have here the Pharisees who are not focused on the heart at all. What does uh, Jesus say the Pharisees are like? They're like whitewashed tombs, but what are they like on the inside? Like dead man's bones, like rotting corpses on the inside. They looked like they had it all together on the outside. But Jesus knew their heart, and he knew that these people were corrupt to the core, that they had missed the point completely. And what these Pharisees had done, we're going to get into some background history. There's, there's a lot of history. It's funny that this is coming just a couple weeks after uh, Frutenbaum because there's a lot of history that we're going to be looking at that sets the stage for this, this setting. But first, I want to point you to something that I think a lot of us miss. is that God gave us, or gave the Jews, the Sabbath for a very specific reason. For rest and for worship. The Sabbath is an amazing day for the Jews because it's a day where they stay home. They don't have to go to work. They're actually commanded not to work. They stayed at home on Saturday. They stay at home, and they're called to rest and to worship. And we'll read here in just a little bit that Jesus says of the Sabbath, the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never intended to be this all-consuming monster that destroyed people's lives. That's, that's what it had become. The Sabbath was intended to give life. It was to give restoration, to call you to worship. And what is worship? Worship is an overflow of our hearts. Worship shouldn't be this just dry bones, let's just pull our stuff together, put a pretty face on and go to church and just raise my hands while I'm sleeping. No, worship is an overflow of our joy that we have in God. So I liken this, this is a good illustration. So my family and I are going to China in May for two weeks as a vacation. And uh, one of the things when you're doing vacation that you can make a mistake on is that you can have too many guidelines, you can have too much planned, and you just kind of fill out this vacation and you become so strict like strict about your, you know, the, the, we got to be here, we got to be here, and it just becomes all regimented. And what can happen to a vacation very easily if you let the planning get out of control? 
It's no longer a vacation. It's actually the hardest work that you've ever done. Because you've got to get here, you've got to get here, you've got to run over here. And so one of the things about vacation that's always important to keep in mind is that you want to keep the intended purpose for vacation intact, which is refreshment, enjoyment, pleasure, those sort of things that vacation brings. But like I said, what if we went to China and we said that we're only allowed to walk, because of my knee, 500 steps a day? No more, no less. We've just got to walk 500, maybe less, but no more than 500 steps. And when we eat, we've got to make sure that we're always eating in this price range, never below, never above, and that we've got to wake up every morning at 5 a.m. and go to sleep at 9, a, or 9 p.m., not 9 a.m. Can you imagine how the stress levels and all those things of the vacation would start to rise, and then everyone would be so stressed the whole time that, that, that they'd come back, we'd come back from China just exhausted. And my point with this illustration is, is that God gave us the Sabbath. He gave the Jews the Sabbath for a time to rest and a time to worship. And what the Pharisees had done with the Sabbath is they had made it impossible to enjoy. They actually had made it something that you probably just, you, you did not want sun, or Saturday to come because when Saturday came, you knew that basically you were going to have to stop everything, that you could only walk so many feet, that you couldn't do all these things because they had fences around fences around fence, fences. And so when that day came, you couldn't enjoy God because you were so worried about offending Him. And this is why Jesus comes and He specifically focuses in on the Sabbath and He says, you guys have destroyed the entire purpose of why God gave us a day of rest. Why God gave us a day to worship Him. You've made it a time to earn God's favor. You've made it a time to do the, you know, to dot the I's and cross the T's and do all these things before Him, to follow His law legalistically and not heartfelt. And so He goes right after the issue. So the main issue we're going to be looking at today is that God commands heartfelt rest and worship while the Pharisees commanded dogmatic religious legalism. How do you know you're in a false religion? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How do you know if someone is lost? How do you know if someone's in a cult? How do you know if someone's a hypocrite? We'll ask them this one simple question. Do you serve out of a desire to earn God's favor? Or do you serve out of an overflow of God's favor? It's a very simple question, and it determines all, all false religion is man's attempt to get God to pay attention to him. It's, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to clean myself up, I'm going to get his approval, I'm going to get his favor by doing all of these things. I'm not going to cuss, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to date, I'm not going to ever go outside, I'm not going to turn on the television. I'm just going to pray all the time. Maybe that's an extreme, but you get where I'm going, right? All false religion is an attempt to get God's favor, to get God to just look at you. The only true religion is that God sent his son, and he chose you. He sent his son not because we demanded it, but because he wanted to. And he sent his son, and his son gladly came down to this earth and gladly lived the life that we can't live and when he lived that life, he died the death that we all deserve on the cross. And he called people to himself, and he said, I did it. I accomplished it all. 
Christ paid it all. All to him we owe. So all false religion comes to basically religious legalism. And we need to get legalism out of our life. Legalism is the problem. Legalism is exactly what Jesus is going after here. If you don't think the Pharisees were legalistic, let me share some background information with you. This was shocking to me, actually. I knew about it, but I wasn't as aware um, to this extent. <clears throat> Sorry. The Mishnah had 39 prohibitive activities on the Sabbath. You were not allowed to do 39 activities or anything that came close to those activities. And so Jesus and his disciples will found break about, broke about six of Mish, the Mishnah laws when it came to the Sabbath just by picking grains of head and by eating them. So here's some examples of what you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. You couldn't plant, you couldn't plow, you couldn't reap, you couldn't gather, you couldn't thresh, you couldn't winnow, you couldn't grind, you couldn't hunt. You, the, you go, the list goes on and on for 39 things. And if you think that's enough, the Dead Sea Scrolls added some more. They said you couldn't carry your children. You couldn't help birthing animals. You couldn't retrieve an animal that had fallen into a pit. There were many things that you couldn't do because what they were doing is God gave the Jews a command, you shall not work on the Sabbath. It's the fourth command in the Ten Commandments. And so they saw God's law, and then what they do? They built fences and fences and fences around that law so that you would never break God's law. But the fact of the matter is, is what they started doing is they start, started making a law unto themselves. And they themselves started to become the authority of the Sabbath. Or, uh, yeah, they, they saw themselves as the authority of the Sabbath. And so Jesus, we're going to see in just a second, goes on to say, you are not Lord of the Sabbath. Who's Lord of the Sabbath? I'm Lord of the Sabbath, is what Jesus says. And in that statement, he claims to be God. Because we, only, we know that there's only one Lord of the Sabbath, and that's God. That's Yahweh. And so Jesus makes a very bold claim, which is why immediately after that claim, after Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, you are not, they seek to kill him because it's blasphemy to claim to be Lord of the Sabbath unless you really are God, which Jesus right there is claiming to be God. The Talmud so you've got the, the, the Mishnah and the Talmud has 24 chapters that focus on Sabbath regulations, meticulously detailing almost innumerable uh, specifics of what constituted acceptable behavior. Guess how many things in the, in the Talmud are around the Sabbath? Guess how many principles there are? 1,500. Over 1,500 regulations about how to rest and not work. Do you see how the Sabbath has become an oppressive system to the Jews in Jesus' day? They have 39 things that they're not allowed to do. They have over 1,500 laws of what they should and shouldn't do on the Sabbath. Then they have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which adds, adds their own mix. And you have, you have all these things that have gathered. It's all legalism. It's all false religion. It's all man's attempt to earn God's favor. And I just want to stop here and ask the question, do we ever do this? build laws around laws around laws, expect other people to operate according to the laws that we've added to Scripture, expect people to, to kind of fit our standards for Christianity. I think every Christian is guilty of this at some point in their lives. And we need to stop pointing at the Pharisees and say, wow, they're terrible people, and look in the mirror and say, man, I've done this myself. 
I've looked at God and said, in order for God to love me, I need to do this and this and this and this, rather than just receiving his love by faith, is what Jesus calls us to. So let's look at the disciples. The four disciples, they're kind of like the three stooges every time you look at them because they're always getting in trouble in the Gospels. And it should make us feel comfortable because we realize Jesus didn't call the brightest and the best and the greatest. That Jesus called the weak, the meek, the humble. And the disciples broke, like I said, six laws in this one account. So the first is they traveled. It says they were traveling along. And the word traveling assumes that they had walked for probably at least some amount of ways. But according to the Mishnah, you were only allowed to walk 1,999 paces on the Sabbath. So you had to walk your paces well. You had to choose your steps wisely because once you hit 1,999, you're done. If you want to know how many paces that is, how long that is, that's about a half a mile. So many of us would break that, break that law just by driving in our car for just a second, wouldn't we? So they were not allowed to walk more than 3,000 feet on a Sabbath on, the, on Saturday. So they came up with a system to subvert their own system. They came up with loopholes so they didn't have to follow their own system, their own laws. So this is something you could do if you were a Jew on the Sabbath. So you can only walk 3,000 feet from your home. So what sometimes they would do is they'd take a rope or something from their own home, and the day before, so on Thursday or Friday, they would walk and they would go about 3,000 feet from their home, tie a rope, and that would give them another 3,000 feet that they could walk because that was from their home. And so they, had, they would have ropes all over the city because they would be allowed to walk to that rope and then walk to the next rope. Something else you could do is you could take either, either a, um, a piece of wood or another rope and tie it in a hallway or in a doorway. And so they would say, this is my house. So wherever that rope or that doorway was tied, then you could walk another 3,000 feet. Sounds a little ridiculous, doesn't it? And what's even funnier is this is their own law that they're trying to find loopholes in so that they don't have to obey their own law. So they, they, the disciples broke that command because they had been traveling. Here's what happened when they grabbed the grain. They broke five laws when they grabbed the, the grain. So they plucked the ears of the grain. So imagine them walking by the road and there's a nice field of grain. Disciples grabbed the grain, and in that one act of plucking the grain, they just reaped. So reaping is forbidden on the Sabbath. And then they hold the grain, and they're removing the husks and the shell. Well, that's called sifting. That's another law that they just broke. And then as they hold the grain, they start rubbing it because they're getting all the rest of it off. Well, that's called threshing. And then they take that and throw it in the air. Well, that's called winnowing. And then they ate it. That's preparing a meal. Just in the matter of grabbing grain, cleaning it off, and eating it, they broke six laws in the Mishnah. Do you see how ridiculous man-made religion truly is? They've come up with all of these things in order to get God's favor, but at the end of the day, no one can keep this, can they? I'm sure these people violated it all the time. But they, but they had a way to kind of justify themselves and look clean in their own systems. Do you want to know what the penalty of working on the Sabbath was? According to Numbers, chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. Stoning to death. So, according to their system, 
the disciples, after cleaning off the grain and eating it, were worthy of death for working on the Sabbath. Just let this sink into you to realize that this is not just some funny kind of, oh, that's ridiculous. We're talking about life or death based upon picking grain on the Sabbath. This is how ridiculous the system had become. And Jesus is walking around frustrated. It says he's angry at their hardness of heart. We're going to see that in a second. That God, the, the one who established the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath, is looking at all of the Jews and he's looking at the Pharisees and he's seeing what they've done to the day that he instituted. A day of rest and a day of refreshment, a day of worship. And they've made it into one of the worst days of the week. And so he's furious and he's, he has the right to be furious. Before we dig in, I want to... I want to look at one more thing. So I want to look at the Sabbath and Sunday because there's kind of a misnomer among Christians that the Sabbath is Sunday. Um, Nowhere in the scriptures does it ever give, it's called transference theology that that God has made the Sabbath into Sunday. And some Christians say that today that, well, our Sabbath is Sunday and their Sabbath is Saturday. We need to get better at our language because the Sabbath is under the Mosaic law. God gave the Sabbath as the fourth commandment. And to say that you're practicing the Sabbath as a Christian is to say that you're still under the Mosaic Law, which when I went through Galatians, do you remember what Paul said over and over again? We are no longer under the Mosaic Law. We're no longer under the Ten Commandments. Now, those still are good commandments and they represent God's heart, but those typified the Mosaic Law. And so the Sabbath, you were not allowed to work. It was forbidden, and if you broke it, you died. You were to be stoned, is what God says. So first we need to realize that it is an Old Testament uh, principle or command. The point of it was rest and worship. And the Sabbath took place from Friday night to Saturday night. The Jewish, the Jewish people counted their days by basically dusk to dusk. And so when Friday night came, that was Sabbath. And it went to Saturday night. And the New Testament never, ever, ever commands Christians to follow the Sabbath. So what about Sunday? What do we do with Sunday? Because we all love Sunday. Sunday is a traditional day that Christians throughout church history have met. And it's very simple. We just keep them separate. The Sabbath is a Mosaic law. The Sunday worship is a Christian tradition, simply put. And it's a great day to worship because a lot of things happened on Sunday. So it's a significant Christian day because the resurrection happened on Sunday. He appeared to many people on Sunday And Pentecost happened on Sunday. The birth of the church happened on Sunday. But scripture always refers to Sunday, never as Sunday, never as a Sabbath, not even as the Lord's Day. Scripture always refers to Sunday in the New Testament as the first day of the week. Very simply put. But throughout church history, Christians have traditionally gathered on Sunday. But what happened with the church is what happened with Judaism as well. As the early church councils got together and they said, on Sunday you shall worship. And they made a commandment out of it. Nowhere in scripture is it commanded that Christians have to worship on Sunday. So this is interesting because we start to feel our own traditions clouding in on us, don't we? No, you have to worship on Sunday. Because we always have. That sounds a lot like the Pharisees, doesn't it? The reason I'm hitting on this is because there's actually been huge movements in the church and divisions and splits over what what day you should worship. 
Have you ever heard of the Seventh-day Adventist? This is an example of how big this, this situation can get. So what do we do with Sunday worship? Well, Sunday is a great day to worship because of all that happened to it. But it cannot become law. Get what I'm saying? If someone worships on Saturday, praise the Lord. If someone worships on Thursday, praise the Lord. If someone worships on Monday morning, praise the Lord. You cannot and you should not judge another believer for when they choose to worship. I've heard Christians, sorry, my cough drop just got on my tongue. I've heard Christians go after Christians who work on a Sunday, and they say, you can't be a Christian, you can't worship the Lord any other day, and so you are not allowed to work on Sunday. Well, what do you do as a Christian if that's the only day you're allowed to work, and you can't make a paycheck because you need to work on Sundays? That's how a lot of companies work. Well, you're free to worship any day of the week you would like. And if you've got issues with this, if this is hitting you a little wrong, Let's, let's meet together and work through the scriptures because never once is it commanded that Christians have to keep Sunday holy. Now the principle is there. We need to find, I think it's health, healthy to find a day of rest and to find a day to worship and to set that day aside. I think that's clear from the Genesis account that God worked six days and rest seven. So I do believe that is a biblical principle that Christians should apply. But the whole point I'm trying to get at with this introduction, this is a longer introduction, but it's important that we understand this, is that we cannot turn around and be just like the Pharisees. We cannot turn around and start putting laws on people and telling people how they should worship and when they should worship and what, how to sit down and how to stand up and how to dress on Sunday morning because that's the same thing the Pharisees were doing. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? And so we need to leave them free just like Jesus left them free to worship whenever they can whenever they want to. And guess what? Worship shouldn't just happen Sunday morning. It should happen every single day of the week. It should happen every single moment, every single hour. Worship should be forever. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are living sacrifices. Hebrews 3 and 4 says that Jesus is our Sabbath rest, that we walk and we live in Jesus Christ. And therefore, every day for us, We have rest in Christ Jesus. We don't have to prove ourselves to God anymore. We don't have to earn his favor. We live in his favor. Does that make sense? We live from the favor of God. We don't need to work to attain it. We just need to believe it. And so I ask the question, have we become legalists ourselves? To where if we follow our own legalism, we think we are in God's favor. Because if we live that way, we're no different than the Pharisees. And Jesus' message that we're about to get into applies directly to us. So with all that, and I still have a voice, we're going to look at the picking of the grain. So here Jesus deals with working on the Sabbath. So his disciples, they're picking grain, they're walking around. And we know that it was allowed for them to pick grain because Deuteronomy 23.35 says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain... You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So what's not allowed, according to the law, is if the disciples were walking by this person's grain field with sickles and bags, and they're hacking at the grain field saying, Jesus, get this stuff, let's go. That's not what's happening here. They're doing what's totally allowed under the law. They're allowed to pick grain because God has a heart of compassion. And if people are hungry, he wants them to be able to eat. 
And so there's something, you see this law throughout the whole Testament where they're, they, they're called not to clean up every bit and scrap of food in the, in the field after the harvest because they want poor people to be able to come in and clean, clean it up and eat it. God has a heart for caring for people. Why? Because people are in the image of God. And so God wants us to have compassion, and he's built it into his laws. But the Pharisees say that they have done what is not lawful. To whose law? That's basically the question Jesus is about to ask. Whose law? God's law? This is totally allowed under God's law. Maybe it breaks your law, but it doesn't break God's law. And guess what he says to these Pharisees? I don't care about your law. I don't. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care about the fact that I'm breaking your standards, I'm breaking your customs, because there is only one person who I care about standards. That's my Father who is in heaven. And my Father has established that we love each other, that we allow each other to eat each other's grain and all those sort of things. And the Pharisees' sin is on display here. They weren't concerned for the well-being of Jesus' disciples. That was the last thing they were concerned about. They were concerned about their petty regulations and their ceremonial laws. Doesn't that hit a little in our hearts as Christians? I think sometimes we get more concerned about our, our traditions, our standards, our customs, that if someone breaks those things, we're less concerned about the state of their soul, we're less concerned about the state of their heart, and we're more concerned about the fact that they've offended us. And we look down our noses at them and we ask the question, well, how dare you break my standards? How dare you break my customs? If you want to be like us, you need to become one of us. And I mean by the whole collar, tie, all the, the you know, fit all the Christian standards that we have that are not biblical. So we need to get away from these traditions. Now, those traditions aren't bad, but they're not law. And that's what I'm trying to draw the, the analogy to. So he goes to David. And we don't have time to read it, but in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 4 through 6, there's a story where David goes in, in to, the, to the high priest Abathar, or actually it's Abimelech, but they call it in the time of Abathar. And he goes into Abimelech, and he gets food. He's hungry. He's, he's on the, raw, the run from Saul. And he goes in here, and there's bread of presence there. And the bread of presence was set aside to God, and you waited a week. They would break, bake it fresh every single week. There was 12 loaves. They would set it on the table, and that was worship to God. And then at the end of the week, the priests were allowed to come and eat the bread. No one else, just the priests. So David goes in, he's starving, he's hungry, and he sees the bread of presence, and Abimelech looks at him and says, you're more than welcome to take and eat. Well, why? This is what Jesus is getting to. Why does Abimelech allow David and his men to eat the bread that was forbidden according to the law of God? Because the law of compassion is higher than the law of ceremony. Abimelech looks at David and his men he has compassion on them because they're hungry and they're starving. And so he says, you are allowed to take that bread because I'm having compassion on you just like God would want me to have compassion upon you. So why is Jesus pointing to David? Because the Pharisees are violating the higher law. In fact, the Pharisees are violating their own law, but the, the, the big issue is they're violating God's law when it comes to compassion and mercy. So Jesus' point is this. Showing compassion always trumps strict adherence to ritual. So let me ask you the question when you're dealing with someone who's breaking your traditions. 
Do you have compassion on them? Do you love them? Does your heart bleed for them the way that God's heart bleeds for them? Or do you look down your nose at them saying, you're disgusting. Your way of life is terrible. You should be like me. You should be clean. You should be well kept. I'm not well kept. I I didn't get a chance to shave this morning, so forgive me. Do you see what I'm saying? Where are our hearts? That's what Jesus is trying to get us to. And Jesus, in verses 27 and 28, says something absolutely shocking. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What does he even mean there? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath? If the Pharisees were angry about his disciples eating grain, they're furious about the statement that Jesus just said. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's see what Jesus just claimed. One, he claimed authority over the Sabbath, over and against their authority. So he looked at them and he said, you are religious people, the whole country looks up to you, You, you're called to be shepherds, you're evil shepherds, your authority is nothing compared to my authority. So Jesus claims authority over the Pharisees. Then he says, in Matthew 12, he says, Jesus, he also says that he is greater than the temple. He says, something greater than the temple is here, me. If you're a Pharisee, your blood is boiling, isn't it? He's not, not only is he saying his authority is greater than mine, now he's going after our temple, saying that he's greater than our temple, and then he says, I am the son of man. And their mind goes immediately to Daniel 7. And they know exactly what he's claiming. Because Daniel 7 talks about the ancient of days and the one like the Son of Man. And they know exactly that he's referring to being God. Well, that really angers them. The Pharisees hate Jesus. He's stepping on their systems. He's stepping on all their plans. He's ruining everything. And the Pharisees are done with Jesus. They've already made up their mind here. He's a problem. He's not here to help us. He's not here to gain, help us gain power. He's not one of us, so he's against us. And we're going to see at the end of, uh, of verse 6, they go out to the Herodians. The Pharisees go to the Herodians. who that, They're strange bedfellows, if you know the Herodians. The Pharisees hated Rome. The Pharisees wanted to be separate from Rome. And the Herodians were pro-Herod. Herod dynasty. And who put Herod in place? Rome. So the Herodians were pro-Herod, pro-Rome. The Pharisees were anti-Rome. They were about being separate from Rome. But it says the Pharisees go to the Herodians. And they plot together how they might kill Jesus. Strange bedfellows, right? Why? Because Jesus was stepping on the political toes and he was stepping on the spiritual toes. They recognized that he claimed to be king, and they recognized that he claimed to bring about a new faith. Brand new. He was ushering in something that had never been before. It's a new covenant, not the old covenant. Remember the wineskins that I preached on last Sunday? He didn't come to patch up their system. He came to, destroy, or to, to fulfill it and to move on and to bring about a new system. So they recognized what's going on here. And then you can feel the tension in verses 1 through 6. So Jesus enters the synagogue again. But remember, the Pharisees have already made up their mind about him. They know exactly who, what he claims to be, and they hate him. 
And so there's a withered man there, a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Now we don't know if the Pharisees brought him there or if he just came on his own. But it, we notice in verse 2 it says, And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might what? Accuse him. So the Pharisees are sitting in the synagogue with the man with the withered hand, knowing that Jesus can't help himself but to heal in the synagogue. And they've already made up their mind that they want to kill him. And so they're sitting there watching Jesus. And Jesus walks into the synagogue. He knows exactly the trap that he's walking into. There's a man with a withered hand who's suffering. And he wants to heal that person. And then the Pharisees are waiting for any moment to jump on him and to basically accuse him so that they might kill him. That's one of the things that they're aiming for. And so in verses 3 through 5, if you will, look down. And it says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. So it's on. Jesus is accepting the challenge. He knows the trap. And he points to the man with the withered hand and says, Come here. It's a command. He's not suggesting it. He's commanding it. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. Jesus right here is looking at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, saying you've rejected compassion and you've held to your strict religious legalism. And he says, what does God say about the Sabbath? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? What's the obvious answer? Good. What are they doing? They're doing evil. They've set a man there who's suffering, and they're using him in order to accuse Jesus. They don't care about any suffering. They don't care about any pain. All they care about is their religious system. And so they've set a, they, either they've set a man there or there just happens to be a man there that they can use. And they're less concerned about this person's suffering and they're more concerned about their own power. And so Jesus asks the question, is it better to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? What do you think God would want you to do? Well, obviously he'd want us to do good. But then he adds something interesting to the end of that. He says, to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? I think here he's putting his finger on their heart intentions of killing him. Your desire this Sabbath day is to kill me. Your desire is for this man to suffer and for me to die. And let me ask you the question. Is it better that, to save a life or to kill showing just how depraved, just how terrible these religious leaders' hearts had become. And so there's silence. The Pharisees don't say anything. You'll notice the Pharisees do this a lot, right? Jesus gets them in the horns of dilemma, and he puts his finger right on their hypocrisy, and every time he does it, how do the Pharisees respond? With silence. And you know what silence represented in that culture? Defeat. They didn't want to affirm him, because if they said, you're absolutely right, we should do good on the Sabbath, and we should save a life, then Jesus would say, your entire system is bankrupt, because it prohibits you from doing good. And that was too high a cost to pay for the Pharisees. So they didn't want to accept his offer, because to accept what he said is to get rid of all the false laws that they had established. See, see how big this is? So the Pharisees' one response, the only thing they could do was just be silent. And then you'll read what Jesus' response to that silence is in verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger. 
That doesn't happen very often where the, the word anger is used of Jesus. It says, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. This man's hand was stiff. It was unusable. And Jesus says, stretch it out. And by faith, the man stretches it out. And it's fully restored. And Jesus knows exactly what he just did. Jesus isn't hoping that he can heal this man and get away. Jesus is hoping to show to the people watching that you always do good on the Sabbath. That you always seek to to heal suffering. that That people are worth it. They're more important than our religious systems. They're more important than our traditions. People bear the image of God, right? So every human being, no matter how disgusting, no matter how broken, no matter how crippled, bears the image of God. And so we have to always, always, always have compassion towards people as our driving motive as Christians. And sometimes that means we get dirty. And sometimes that means we go into messy places. And sometimes that means that those around us will look poorly at us because we're going into sinners' houses, right? Like Jesus did all the time. The point being is sometimes our ego and our identity has to take a hit so that we can love people the way Jesus loves people. And then in verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. It's very early in Mark, and we already see that Jesus has caused a lot of enemies, that Jesus has stepped on a lot of toes. That's why I love Jesus so much, because when I get tired of religion, I just look to Jesus. James says the only true and good religion is what? Compassion, caring for the widows and the orphans. The only good religion out there is compassion. Now, if you're hearing this, you're saying, isn't Christianity a religion? I, I, I just always put it on the shelf with all the other religions. Christianity is a relationship. We were created to be in relationship with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, and then they sinned against him, and that relationship was broken. The whole Bible, this entire Bible, is about redemption, It's about restoration with God. God has called us to be in relationship with him, and he went through an extravagant process to bring us back into relationship with him. And we are adopted as his children in Christ Jesus, and in that relationship with Christ, we're back into fellowship with God. So is Christianity a religion? Not at all. Christianity is a relationship. And if you want to point to any type of religion within Christianity... Talk about compassion, like caring for the widows and the orphans. Because that's the only thing God cares about when it comes to our service in order to earn his favor. He says, if you want, if you want to operate religiously, go serve people with compassion and with love and operate from my favor, not for my favor. Operate from a place where you know that you're in relationship with me and you share that with others. Does that make sense? Let me read two verses for you. And then we'll summarize it. Hosea 6.6 says this. So this is Old Testament. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. He desires your heart, not your money. Sure, when we know him and we tithe and we give, it's in response to our love of him. But that's not what we do to earn his love. And then Matthew 12, 7 says this, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So Jesus says from his own lips that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Do you see how different Jesus' way is than the Pharisees? Do you see why he couldn't just mix it with them and patch up their system? He had to get rid of it. He had to throw away their false religion. He had to get rid of their legalism. He had to get rid of their moralism. And what I mean by moralism is to do good enough to earn God's favor. He said, get rid of your legalism, get rid of your moralism, and follow me. Place your trust in me. That's what Christianity is. Can I get an amen? We don't serve a God that wants hypocrites. We don't serve a God that wants us to put good, clean faces on all the time. We serve a God that wants our hearts. He wants genuine worship. He wants genuine love. So, God is not impressed by our religious activities. God is concerned with the heart behind your worship. And God always desires compassion, steadfast love over sacrifice. Ask yourself whenever you're doing anything, is my heart in it? You can go out and feed the poor. You can go out and serve your neighbor. You can go out and chop wood. But if your heart is not doing it out of love, if it's doing it out of a desire to be looked at and say, wow, that person's amazing, Jesus would look at you and say, well, you have your reward in full. But if you're doing it out of love for your neighbor, if you're doing it out of love for God, then your reward awaits for you in heaven. And that's what we need to work for. So I called this one, so what, instead of now what, just to throw you guys off a little bit. So what? So what do we do with all of this information? How do we change our thinking? How do we change the way that we view God? God is not impressed by your religious works, but by the heart behind your works. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, and end there. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to teach on it. I just want you to hear what 1 Corinthians 13 Verses 1 through 3 says, and it'll make Jesus' statement so much clearer. Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and of all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I, all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See how important love is. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we just thank you so much for the fact that we follow you out of faith, by your grace and your mercy. Lord, that we don't have to clean ourselves up enough to earn your favor, Lord, that we can come as we are. Or we can come as sinners. We can come as those who are in desperate need. We can come with our hands wide open, saying, I need. I need your son. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I have nothing to offer in return.
Lord, that's how you expect people to enter into your kingdom with nothing. And that they open their hands to you, willing to receive all the glorious treasures of grace and mercy that you bestow. Father, now as we come to communion, I pray that we would remember what it is we're celebrating. Lord, that as we take the bread and drink the juice, Lord, that we would remember all that your son did on the cross, that he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, that he died the death that we deserve, and that he rose again so that we might share in his life and in his righteousness. We pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.